0: Ex-Worker, an audio strike against the monotone world,
1: a twice-monthly podcast of anarchist ideas and action
0: for everyone who dreams of a life off the clock.
1: Welcome to episode four of The Ex-Worker. Today we'll be discussing prisons and why we hate them. We'll also hear a review of Between Predicates War, theses on Contemporary Struggle, An interview with someone involved in the Indiana Prisoner Zine Distro. And
0: much more. My name is Alanis. And my name is Clara. And we'll be your hosts.
1: We want to know what you think. Direct all criticisms, black faxes, questions, or suggestions to podcast at crimethink.com. Or you can prank call us at 202-59-NO-WORK. That's 202 596 6975. Bombs away! Before we get to it, let's hear some news and updates from struggles around the world. Clara?
0: Riots have raged across Turkey for over a week after an occupation in Istanbul's Gezi Park was brutally broken up by police. The protesters, who are trying to prevent the construction of a shopping mall on top of some of the last remaining green space in the city, fought back with force. Clashes have spread to over 36 cities in Turkey and are no longer only focusing on the destruction of the park, but also government corruption, media silence around the protests, and President Erdogan's bid for a renewed religious fundamentalism in Turkey. A comrade holding
1: it down at Gezi Park sent us his account. He writes from behind the rubble. The first barricade seems impenetrable. Hundreds of bricks piled high, torn fences, and flipped over cars mix into a single shield of corrugated steel with long metal spikes sticking out front, as if ready to defend against any horse charge. But then you walk another 10 meters and see the next one, twice as big, more bricks, more fences, graffiti all over it. Not only the main street and all of the side streets, Every surrounding street is blocked. All the sidewalks are sand, having their bricks taken out and put to new uses. Constant streams of people are hanging out around each barricade, posing for photos. Vendors are selling spray paint, gas masks, and goggles between each barricade. iPhones, iPads, and all i-devices are capturing the moments of joy and pride for everyone. All ages join in the jumping on of destroyed cars, playing inside the smashed out tractors, buses, and media vans. The Ataturk Cultural Center, a five-story building on one side of Tocsin Square, is draped with massive banners saying Don't Obey, Taif, resign, and huge flags of Ataturk, mixed with anarchist graffiti and football signs. The whole thing seems medieval, with helmets, javelin poles, and a view of the Bosphorus, Hagia Sophia, and Blue Mosque in their horizon. The majority of violence, it seems, has moved to the other 60 cities in Turkey, where demonstrations arose, especially in Ankara. The local demands of the Gezi Park demonstration no longer have any relevance for the majority of people taking part in this mass uprising, but everyone is still somehow unified by their opposition to the police and enraged at the overreaction of the government. What binds the hundreds of thousands of people in the Taksim Square together can't be explained by any political ideology or secular or religious divide or green movement. Rather, it seems that the sheer joy of taking over the center of the city has kept the movement alive, liberating it from both police control and the market imperative of growth. Please visit flickr.com slash photos slash Weltgeist for a growing photo archive of Gezi Park. Weltgeist is spelled W-E-L-T-G-E-I-S-T.
0: Meanwhile, solidarity demonstrations have spread all over the world, including marches and actions reported in dozens of cities, and even a solidarity reoccupation of an urban farm in San Francisco, renamed Gezi Gardens.
1: On June 3rd, the Supreme Court ruled that police making warrantless arrests are allowed to collect DNA swabs, a practice already standard in half of all states. The DNA collection, which consists of a swab that takes cells from the inside of an arrestee's cheek, will likely become part of standard booking procedure, along with standard identification techniques such as fingerprinting and photographing.
0: The G8 in London doesn't officially start until the 17th, but protesters have already had a few run-ins with the police in the lead-up week of action. Pigs raided the Counter G8 Convergence Center early on June 11th, arresting people while utilizing tasers, tear gas, and brute force. Despite the raid and London somehow being more police than usual, A huge carnival against capitalism took place later in the afternoon, including a street party and Piccadilly Circus.
1: June 11th was also the International Day of Solidarity with Marie Mason and Eric McDavid and long-term anarchist prisoners. Informational events and actions took place in dozens of cities across the U.S. and around the world. For a full rundown, you can visit june11.org.
2: Now it's time to hear some entries from the Crime Think Contradictionary. This episode is brought to you by Trial
3: and Bluff. Trial, a formal proceeding designed to emphasize the innocence of judges and lawyers by contrasting them with a defendant, often drawn from the most desperate sectors of society. If this exercise is not sufficient, the defendant is subjected to such an affliction that the worthy jurists can at least congratulate themselves on not being in his shoes. Bluff Near the end of the Second World War, twice decorated veteran Alexander Solzhenitsyn was arrested for sending a letter mentioning the moustached one, which the censors took to designate Stalin himself. Young Alexander was sent to the Soviet prison labor camps along with millions of dissidents, supposed conspirators, prisoners of war, and hapless civilians. After Solzhenitsyn and his fellow inmates had spent several strenuous months in forced labor, a guard distributed registration cards in a belated effort to sort out who all these new prisoners were. One of the blanks on the form was marked Trade or Profession. Other inmates answered, Tailor, Barber, or cook, in hopes of obtaining a more advantageous position in the camps. But Solzhenitsyn, fed up altogether, scribbled in nuclear physicist. At this time, the top Soviet scientists were racing to discover the secret of the atomic bomb. Solzhenitsyn didn't give the survey another thought, but a year and a half later, a black Maria arrived just for him. It took him to a sharashka, a special scientific research facility run by Ministry of State Security. He had never studied nuclear physics. We can imagine Solzhenitsyn on the laboratory bench the following morning, beginning his first day of work under the watchful eyes of elite guards. Concealing his dismay, he whispers to the inmate beside him, Are you a nuclear physicist? Shh, of course not, hisses back his new colleague. But don't worry, these morons have no idea what's going on.
2: For more explorations of the war in every word, Visit crimethink.com
4: slash contradictionary. One day of prison. Two days of prison. Three days of prison. A month of prison. The door closes and opens, then closes and opens again. Three months of prison. A year of prison. I need to know if others are thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about them. The days can't go by fast enough now. 482 days of prison. 483 days of prison, 480.
1: Ask a warden how many people are imprisoned in his facility, and without a doubt, he'll tell you the maximum capacity. Bulging under the tension of incarcerating 1.6 million adults in state and federal prisons around the country, many prisons in the U.S. have had to make makeshift living quarters for detainees. Inmates sleep in public places like gymnasiums and cafeterias, and cells which were designed to house only one person now house three. Marie Mason, in fact, once lived in a gymnasium-sized control unit that housed up to 20 female prisoners, but recently the space has been cut in half. For years, the United States has incarcerated far more people than any other country, today imprisoning some 716 people out of every 100,000. Over the past 30 years, the federal prison population in the U.S. has jumped from 25,000 to 219,000, and it's an increase of nearly 790%. As a result of harsh sentencing, the average age of prisoners is changing as well. Last year, some 95,000 juveniles under 18 were put in prison, and that doesn't count those in juvenile facilities. And between 2007 and 2011, the population of those over 64 grew by 94 times the rate of the regular prison population. So, in 2011, the Supreme Court labeled California's overcrowded conditions in its jails unconstitutional and ordered the state to release 30,000 prisoners by the middle of 2012. In response, California slowed the admission rate and had 15,000 fewer prisoners by the end of the year. The total state prison population dropped by about 70% due to California alone. And so though the U.S. prison population is shrinking slightly because of California, the number of inmates in federal lockup is increasing. Some prison reformists argue that the most important element in explaining the hefty incarceration numbers are mandatory minimum sentencing requirements at both state and federal levels. These requirements automatically set certain prison sentences for certain crimes. And reformists argue that changing these policies can reduce prison populations by reducing lengthy prison terms that contribute to overcrowding. But bending under their own weight, in 2011, seven states weakened or repealed certain mandatory minimum regulations. That's kind of surprising, actually, since prison labor makes up a huge part of the American workforce.
4: Piramids. slaves, built the Parthenon,
5: slaves,
4: built America, slaves, this is you. your song, thank you, slaves, thank you, slaves, thank
5: you, slaves, slaves,
4: this is your song, thank
5: you,
1: Under the guise of vocational training, inmates are often paid pennies, or minimum wage, minus fees and victim compensation, to package Starbucks coffee, Nintendo Game Boys, and process more than 680,000 pounds of beef, 400,000 pounds of chicken products, 450,000 gallons of milk, 280,000 loaves of bread, and 2.9 million eggs from 160,000 inmate-raised hens. The seamlessness of capital and state structures reaches an apex when Texas prisoners slave over the cops' duty belts, gun containers, handcuff cases, human silhouette targets, and prison cell accessories that cage them. Of course, in the ever-expanding age of capital, it's not surprising that many of today's lockups are not operated by the government, but by for-profit companies. And thus, Some people are making lots and lots of money off the booming business of keeping people in cages. But who are these people? Well, the Correction Corporation of America is the largest prison operator and imprisons 80,000 inmates in 60 prisons. GEO Group is the second largest private prison operator. And Vanguard Group and Fidelity Investments are America's top two 401k providers. Together they own about 20% of both CCA and GEO. And let's not forget the people who make meager amounts of money off this centuries-old custom of keeping human beings in cages. The wardens, cooks, prison medical staff, county sheriffs, probation officers, parole board members, clergymen, state patrol and prison guards, court personnel, bailiffs, cops, and prison truck drivers. These people are also known as our neighbors... Parents, uncles, aunts, cousins, siblings, family friends, strangers, acquaintances, and people you see on the bus or at the library. They are
0: not friends. They are the state. Mom,
1: where do prisons come from?
0: The state. You know, prisons are like micro-states.
1: How can you say that? Like a state is like a thing. No one even
0: knows what a state is. I don't think that's true. Now that I think about it, states might not even exist. It obviously exists. We struggle against it. How could we struggle so much against something that doesn't exist? Well, at least no one agrees what it is. That's fair. There are lots of theories about what's a state. When we look at how those theories have changed over time, we can see the state has become a system that works around us and through us. And possibly, by understanding our footing, we can start to map out resistance. So imagine back in the day when peeps were trying to figure out how to overthrow the Russian Tsar. The communists envisioned society as warring classes, and the state was the exterior force that held these warring classes together, settling disputes from above. Like a parent settling a disagreement between two kids, the state gets to decide what kinds of physical forces legit and what kind was not. And that meant that in the interest of holding everyone together, the state gets to decide who lives and who dies. That's the law. Okay, so imagine the two classes in conflict, just two big blobs bumping up against one another. Now draw a big circle around them. That circle represents the decision-making process of the state. Everyone within the circle is subject to the state's decisions. Everything outside of the circle is outside of that law. Any sort of criminal justice system exists within the circle. So, although tensions between the class might run high from time to time, and one side may get a little out of control, within the circle, there's a preconceived way of dealing with the situation. If there's a law broken, there's a punishment. If there's a fight, there's a resolution. Then what could exist outside of the circle? Well, sometimes states bend the rules. For example, states issue emergency decrees come under martial law, abandon constitutional civil liberties for protection of homeland security, and extend military authority to the civilian sphere. When instituted, these laws don't draw a new circle, but instead imagine a big hand picking apart bits of each blob and putting them outside the circle. In this no-man's land, coined the state of exception, state power is completely without restraint.
1: And armed with every resource that the blobs within the circle has provided
0: it. Great! Now that we have a basic diagram of the state, let's look closer at how it functions. By diagram, do you mean the blobs and their circle? Yep! Now we're going to look inside the circle with the understanding that there's a big hand hovering over the blobs, and at all time ready to pluck bits of them away. In the next phase of our state theory, Louis Althusser suggests that the state works in collusion with the ruling class. Let's say one blob is bigger than the other. It's rich, it's popular, it's clearly in control, it's attractive, and basically everyone thinks the big blob is really great. That's the ruling class. So it seems as though there's a grand system set up to favor the interests of the big blob. This grand system is also known as repression, which includes all state action from the most brutal physical force to open and tacit censorship. How does the smaller blob not just totally freak out though under all this pressure with the whole circle thing and now this grand repressive system?
1: We should totally get stab
0: Althusser suggested that there are actually two state structures that work together to do what the state has always done. Hold, Hold the, the warring classes, classes together. together so there's this repressive system that contains the government administration the army the police the courts and prisons but there are also ideological institutions that make everyone feel like they know what's going on and kind of create this social lube whereby the state keeps order and the big blob stays on top so imagine the state as an electric chair The repressive system is like the chair and the straps, and the ideological institutions are like the sedative that you take before. Wait, so what's the electricity? Oh yeah, that's the state power coursing through you and the chair. Speaking of executions, do you want to talk about Foucault?
1: Yeah! In the middle of the 20th century, Foucault and Althusser diverted from preceding state theories. They were more interested in how states control society. In different ways, they looked at how the state had evolved from an institution that maintains order between the blobs. Foucault arrives at something much more amorphous and spiritually penetrating. In fact, he kind of argues that the state doesn't even exist anymore. For Foucault, the classical notion of the sovereign power is receding and discipline is advancing. In Discipline and Punish, we witness punishment as spectacle disappear. Now, the certainty of punishment, and not its horror, deters a person from committing a crime. So, instead of a cleaved hand, conviction marks the prisoner. Copability exists in the motives, passions, and instincts of the criminal. And so, the supervision and direction of an individual's mind became the crux of punishment. When the penalty addresses the soul, rehabilitation became possible. And the power to punish becomes fragmented and shared among different points in society, so everyone can have a hand in judging a criminal. Punishment grows into a complex social function predicated by a common body of knowledge. The force of the state doesn't come from physical weapons or material conditions of any kind. Instead, power relations operate and exist through people. Power is not a property, but a strategy, and it's visible in the relations as people interact. Foucault would encourage thinking of the body politic as a series of roots and weapons by which power operates. And this history of power dynamics has shaped a genealogy of the soul. And now, the soul is the prison of the body. From here, the Situationists, a surrealist group of autonomous Marxists, scrawled on the wall of the Sorbonne during the riots of May 68. How can you think freely in the shadow of a church? In response, An anonymous comrade later wrote, This impeccable question has wider implications. Anything that has been designed for economic or religious purposes cannot fail to impose anything but economic or religious desires. A desecrated church continues to be the house of God. Commodities continue their clatter in an abandoned shopping center. The parade ground of a disused barracks still contains the marching of the soldiers. The destruction of the Bastille was an act of applied social psychology. The Bastille could never have been managed as anything other than a prison, because its walls would have continued to tell the tale of incarcerated bodies and desires.
0: Mom, how do we destroy prisons? The contemporary prison abolition movement has deep roots in the abolitionist movement of the 1800s. Today, there are more black people under correctional control, in prison or jail, or on probation or parole than were enslaved in 1850, a full decade before the Civil War began. Academic and prison abolitionist Angela Davis.
5: We've come to think about uh, uh, the Prison industrial complex uh, as uh, linked very much to slavery, as uh, revealing the sediments and the vestiges of slavery, as providing evidence that the slavery we may have thought was abolished uh, uh, with the 13th Amendment is still very much with us. It haunts us, especially uh, in uh, uh, the form of this vast prison industrial complex, a prison system within the U.S. that holds uh, something like 2.5 million people, more people in prison than anywhere else in the world, more people per capita uh, um, as well. The rate of incarceration one in 100 adults in the U.S. Uh, is behind bars, and that's really only because of the disproportionate number of black people and people of color uh, who, whose lives have been claimed by the prison system.
0: While in reality, fewer than one in 100 Americans are in jail, among the population of young black men, the ratio is actually closer to one in four.
5: That's it. Oh,
0: well... Today, a young black man is more likely to be imprisoned than to get married or go to college. The abolitionist movement continues today and calls for the end of the prison industrial complex, though many activists focus their energies on specific reforms, such as eliminating the death penalty. For example, Mumia Abu-Jamal, a black nationalist who spent 30 years on death row, is an important figure in the abolitionist movement. Abolitionists also call for the shifting of resources away from punishment and toward education, housing, and social services that build up communities instead of tearing them down. These arguments are similar to those Frederick Douglass or W.E.B. Dubois might have made with respect to the abolition of slavery. Many prison abolitionists advocate replacing the contemporary prison system with other governmental structures or even just reducing the role of prisons in society. But some organizations, such as the Anarchist Black Cross, or ABC, seek the total eradication of prisons, with no intention on replacing them with other state-controlled systems, instead proposing a variety of community and individual processes. The first Anarchist Black Cross emerged out of the Tsarist government's repression of anarchists in 1906. Once released, former prisoners provided clothing to anarchists exiled to Siberia under the banner Anarchist Red Cross. During the Russian Civil War, the ARC's name changed to Anarchist Black Cross to avoid confusion with the International Red Cross. The organization coordinated self-defense units against political raids by the Cossack and Red Armies. Today, a number of autonomous groups scattered throughout the world operate under the ABC name, providing material and political support for a wide variety of prisoners. Mom, how do we destroy prison society? Can I make an understatement? Yeah. One key obstacle to destroying prisons is that it's not just the walls and the barbed wire. It's not even just the guards and wardens. (laughs) We're all enclosed, surveilled, and aware of all of this. Imagine a city where you would be able to leave your apartment, your street, your neighborhood, thanks to your individual electronic card that raises a given barrier but the card could be just as easily rejected on any given day or during certain hours. What counts is not the card or the barrier, but the computer that tracks each person's position and affects a universal modulation. If you're a prisoner, this is pretty easy to imagine. Hell, if you're an office worker or a postal employee. In 1989, the French government launched a reorganization of the French penitentiary system called the Program of the 13,000, in an effort to create this imaginary city. The declared aim was to create 13,000 new spaces for prisoners in order to alleviate overcrowding. It was the modern prison system promising security through new technologies capable of constantly controlling the prisoner in each of his movements in a discreet and aseptic way. Os took up this challenge launched by the French government, and, starting in April 1989, began a long campaign of sabotage at the construction sites, as well as managing to steal the new building blueprints. This group of antagonistic workers had emerged from May 68, already a collection of petty criminals, social outlaws, and the willing accomplices of prisoners. The term canicero was a pejorative used to refer to bands of poor peasants who inhabited the northeastern deserts of Brazil, wearing leather clothing and hats and armed with revolvers, shotguns, and long, narrow knives. As reflected by their title, Os Caneceros lived simple lives and used simple tools. They wrote, We don't just talk about violence. It is our element, our everyday fate, the conditions we are forced to live in. Our tools of action are those that any proletarian uses, sabotage and vandalism. We don't do symbolic actions. We create disorder, as workers in a struggle commonly know how to do when they blockade roads and railroads, sabotage materials, television transmitters, etc. The simplicity made struggle easy to reproduce, and within weeks, similar eruptions had spread throughout France. After more than a year of sabotage, Oscañares obtained 10,000 addresses of residents in the vicinity of future prisons to whom they sent extracts of a voluminous dossier containing dates and information about the institutions of punishment that were being built. And in November 1990, they published the complete dossier, entitled 13,000 Escapes. The dossier contained accurate technical documentation about the many prisons under construction or in the process of being restructured, with general outlines, information about materials used, fixtures, controls of access, doors and locks, electric and hydraulic systems, sanitation, roofing, And external installations. And, above all, there are detailed little maps of every building and its particulars. So, as anarchists, we see how civilization
1: continues in its mad path toward the enslavement, commodification, and eventual destruction of all life on earth, and the state remains persistent in its repression of those who choose to act upon their desire to put it to an end. They know that every arrest, every jail term, every snitch in the world cannot stifle each of our irrepressible passions. For the informality of our resistance is strength, and they can never take away our solidarity of frustration and awakened hearts. They cannot preclude our desire for insurrection if we maintain dedicated to supporting, through both aid and continued action, those in our communities who fall victim to the state's repression.
0: When some insurrectionary anarchists choose to couple their material support of prisoners with a personal hatred of prison society, this hatred has historically manifest in the form of fire and well-coordinated attacks on state facilities. And, if everything goes according to plan, the timing of the assail will also publicize a corollary prison riot. But as Oscon demonstrated, there are lots of actions that both enable prisoners to live subversively and reject the spectacle of the state. We asked a Supermax lockup prisoner who has been rebelling against the state prison system for over 20 years for his opinion on the role of insurgency, inside and outside. I apologize for audio, but of, open prison rebellion won't be polished either. This audio crawled through a few dozen feet of concrete and bulletproof glass to get here. everybody got a roll. You got above the ground, you got on you got hard hits, you got light hits. Um, the objective should be not
2: only too exposed for what it does, but also to disrupt its operations, you know, to let them know that we don't struggle in, in, in isolation,
0: that we don't struggle alone, that they can't just murder us and kill us and beat the shit out of us and drug us up and lynch us without there being repercussions, without there being exposure It's not all about us on the outside. Even amongst the tightest government techniques, revolt lives. For
1: example, in the early 1990s, Indiana state penitentiaries erupted in rebellion. Prisoners engaged in hunger strikes and took correctional facility staff members hostage. Though Indiana prisons have a long history of rebellion, during these years, the acts of individual prisoners began to link up. This was their uprising,
0: and it was spreading.
1: Our comrade reads a passage of his own writing describing solidarity between prisoners during this time. This excerpt comes from the book Down, Reflections on Indiana Prisoner Resistance. The DOC reference herein stands for Department of Corrections, and MCC stands for Maximum Control Center. To download a PDF of Down, or if you would like to read more insights from our comrades inside of Indiana prisons, please visit PrisonerResistanceIndiana.wordpress.com.
0: In a closed society designed to annihilate subversion, rebellion behind prison walls is often met with escalated repression beyond the prison system's customary inhumanity. John Bowden is a prolific writer and a prisoner at the fore of prison struggle in the U.K., he was originally sentenced with a 25-year recommendation life sentence for the killing of a man during a drunken party. In a public letter in 2007, John described his process of radicalization and the escalation and repression that follows from political action. Quote, for more than two decades in prison, I have pursued and fought for the cause of prisoners' rights and tried with every means at my disposal to highlight and expose the frequent and often horrendous abuses of power that I have witnessed and experienced. As a consequence, my name has become synonymous in the minds of prison officials with sedition and defiance, and the specter of something that has always frightened, enraged, and driven them to use every method and means to eradicate and destroy it, prisoner power. Links to the writing of John and other prison rebels can be found at crimethink.com podcast four.
4: Prison has its own smell, a smell that gets all over you and follows you around. I'll never manage to get it off me. Yesterday marked two calendars in prison. Two fucking years. I don't get any sleep. I've forgotten how to smile and now I can't dream. Clink, clink in the night. They wake me up for a search. Maybe they'll find the shanks. 751 days of prison. Are you satisfied, my dear judges? Pigs. 752 days of prison, pigs. 753 pigs. Coming and going and off I go. Coming and going and off I go. My cell is 3 meters by 3 meters. From the second floor window I see 20% of the sky over the top of the fucking prison wall. I walk through the yard like an automaton. I walk kilometers in a yard measuring just a few meters. Boredom and boredom again. Today I vomited up my very soul. I vomited bars, walls, solitary confinements, years of prison, judicial sentences. I vomited three years of prison. I don't want to count anymore. I completely close my eyes and think. I think about my comrades whom they're keeping far away from me in other prisons. I think about fires on the prison roofs. I think about everything prison has tried to make me forget. I think about a smile, a caress, a journey that doesn't end over there where the wall ends, a glance that isn't trapped behind the fucking prison walls. I stop thinking. I open my hand. I look at the metal file I have. Now I know. I know exactly what I have to do. Let's go then, once again, this time with feeling. Until the end. Long live anarchy.
1: And now it's time for The Chopping Block, where in each episode we review a classic or contemporary anarchist text and let you know what we think. Today we're looking at a recent publication entitled Between Predicates War, Theses on Contemporary Struggle, from a rowdy assemblage of uncontrollables known as the Institute for Experimental Freedom. Between predicates war comes at a time when many anarchists of the world are reeling from Occupy, the Arab Spring, London, Greece 2008, perhaps as soon to be Turkey, hashtags, austerity, and more forms of hefty repression than we can throw a brick at. We've struggled against governing forces and the rubble of our lives puts a metaphorical spin on the isolating question of where do we go from here? Even the language at our disposal feels compromising. Where to? What is governing? What is struggle? What is this we proving the limits of language? Because there's a feeling there telling us that there's a situation unfolding and a party therein. The book feels like a strong deviation from other insurrectionary anarchist material. It's a pensive evaluation of the situation that we've got going on here. There's an insurrection afoot, maybe, but how? And how could we be party to it? IEF postulates the end of the state as a solid institution that we could hypothetically bludgeon with a big stick small flag. In the age of technology, governance has become a composition of intersecting techniques poised to extract power from the government. Totally immersed, we move forward. A crisis erupts, and herein we call out autonomy and find, quote, a need for something else. IEF writes, Autonomy, even in something as banal as an occupation protesting wealth disparity, carries with it a radically different human life. However, the question exists. How can we stop being creatures of government? If the popular assemblies and occupations are put to work for a mythic alternative, the development of self-managing communities to do the work of government, the exclusion of antagonisms in search of a pure, peaceful politics, then these forms will end up strengthening the anthropology of man as a passive being, removed from nature, with a penchant for safety. Between Predicates War insists that present struggles are departures from a social movement, and not just because they burn everything to the ground and incoherently lash out on the street, but rather because the struggles of today have many characteristics such as random violence, growing and fermenting food, collecting crap, stealing from work, knitting, and making messenger bags, music, and parties, all of which surpass the expectations of governments. All of these and other gestures draw into question how the current world functions and at the same time articulate another world. The book puts a lot of faith in gestures, But when a key question is how do we parkour our way out of this whole government business, a gesture starts to look like an answer. Without giving too much of this 104-page exposition away, things that resonated with me were that crime reveals the need for friendship, modern revolution is very sad and lonely, and communize everything, because we need access to everything that makes us want to keep living and keep fighting. IRL. In sum, this book's a pretty fresh, relevant, and well-organized look at what we're doing, what we've done, and how we could possibly move forward. It takes a lot of the proposals of insurrectionary anarchism and translates them to a language peeps can understand. The questions raised therein capture the situation at hand, so I encourage you to push through any jargon and orient yourself in the milieu. When decisions have to be made and questions posed, the most important of which is, what does it mean to live a life? Now it's time for the mugshot, our profile of a contemporary anarchist project. Today we're speaking with Jesse Smith, an anarchist from the Midwestern U.S., who's been doing prisoner solidarity in various forms for the last six years. Primarily holding it down in Indiana, last year Jesse started the Midwest Pages to Prisoners Zine Distro. Today he sat down with the ex-worker to tell us about it and the nature of contemporary prison struggle. Midwest Pages to Prisoners is a books to prisoners program that has served 16 states around the country for over a decade.
2: So the zine component of the Books Distro started about a year ago with the intention of distributing explicitly political material to prisoners, specifically in Indiana. The idea being that the material being distributed within a geographically... Specific region would allow for political discussions to occur both within and without the prison walls themselves. So looking at the idea of building networks of communication and building networks of personal relationships both between prisoners themselves and amongst people on the inside and the outside so that these connections can be used for furthering struggle against the prison system.
1: Tell us a little bit about the mechanics of the zine distro.
2: So the way that it works basically is that with every package of books that goes out from the Midwest Pages to Prisoners project to a prisoner in Indiana, along with those books is sent a zine catalog that has the option of selecting up to five zines out of what I think is right now 115 selections from various categories about prisons, or race, or various radical history of social movements. We will uh, fill that order and write a personal letter back to these people and request that they write us back about the zines, their reflections on them, their reflections on their personal experiences in light of what they're reading, whether it be about a historical movement or some sort of theoretical position that a zine is taking. And we can start a conversation from that point based on this explicitly political material, hoping that it will be a jumping off point for a relationship building process.
1: So why did you make the decision to only distribute explicitly political material?
2: There are lots of organizations that distribute books of all kinds, you know, whether it be like pulp fiction or or books about cats or what have you. There's lots of different groups that do that and that's really helpful for people for their mental health and to help pass the time. But we decided to distribute explicitly political material because that was something that is lacking in a lot of these books to prisoners programs. Most of these programs rely on donations from individuals and a lot of people either don't have those books or don't get rid of those books. And so, in my experience, has been an extreme lack of explicitly political material going out in these distribution programs. And the second reason is that um, prisoners don't have easily accessible means of getting these sorts of materials other than these books distribution programs. And that didn't used to be the case. There used to be lots of radical prison rebels who, who would have libraries full of these things, libraries full of radical books and zines and pamphlets, and people would be writing their own political material, and they, they would have these libraries in their cells. And they could distribute those to people that would want to read them and what have you and and have reading groups with these various political materials, but in Indiana throughout the nineties, those sorts of personal libraries were pretty much obliterated across the state, and lots of people lost all of their explicitly political material of, of whatever flavor it was that they that they had and so trying to distribute explicitly political material is an attempt to help people rebuild these libraries that they once had and encourage them to share these materials with people who have never had access to them.
1: What sorts of explicitly political materials do you have? Like, Could you give me a list of the titles that you have in your catalog or alternatively where the political leaning goes for the overall catalog?
2: So like I said, there's... Over 115 zines in the catalog, and when looking at various programs like the zine distro when we were developing the catalog, we took a couple of lessons to heart, and that was a lot of the other zine distros seem to be specifically tailored to the people on the outside's political views. And so we tried to avoid that in, in developing our zine catalog and sought to offer as much material as possible that we could and let people draw their own conclusions about the political nature of the writer or the writers who are creating these materials. And so we developed general categories and then tried to fill them in with as as many and as um, diverse kinds of political materials as we could. But overall, the general theoretical framework that these materials have are anarchisty in nature. Some of them are explicitly about anarchist political theory. A lot of them are by anarchist writers about other topics. Our most requested zines from the prison section of our catalog, zines about prison, about people's experiences in prison, uh, how to survive in solitary confinement. People who have written zines from prison in Indiana about their specific experiences with the Indiana system are often requested from us. Um, And those are the zines that are most responded to as well, because people can readily relate their own experiences to that and draw whatever political conclusions that they do. Our next most requested um, category is about radical history and social movements, because the zines in that section of the catalog are often attempting to tell a story that is hidden by normal history books, stories of slave rebellions or more explicitly violent civil rights movements that get clouded over by the history of, of nonviolent movements or what have you. So these sorts of radical history projects that people can relate to moments in their own life if they're old enough to remember those sorts of things.
1: So going back to this idea about radical political libraries within Indiana prisons, you said before that they were obliterated during the 90s, and I'm just curious about the mechanisms by which they were destroyed. And also, uh, is there anything that you, either the zine distro is doing or that you're doing in communication with prisoners to prevent that destruction from continuing again?
2: So it's my understanding that the way that this process worked is that it was Almost exclusively, like procedural shifts in the way that the DOC related to people's personal materials, and that through the late '70s and '80s, there were some really hard-fought battles um, by people, particularly of a new African sentiment, to have the DOC allow certain types of like political study groups or pseudo-religious gatherings or what have you of prisoners to talk and study together and what have you and so during the 90s there was this sort of procedurally imposed cultural shift in the mentality of the of the prisoners to where they wouldn't allow certain types of political material explicitly but they also just simply wouldn't allow you to have as many books in your cell Or they wouldn't allow you to have things that weren't published by an actual publisher. So like handwritten zines or photocopy zines or something like that. And then they started disallowing these like political study groups, these gatherings of prisoners where these things would be exchanged in the first place, became forbidden. And this went hand in hand with two other sorts of shifts. And And this is all talked about more in the Down, a history of prison struggle in Indiana. There was a shift in the cultural input into the prisons in that they started allowing tvs into prison and that changed a lot of the ways that people would spend their free time and so readings and writings weren't circulating as much anymore but there was also a shift in the cultural mentality of people coming into prison as well and that in the 70s and 80s the people coming into a prison were in some ways, a product of the late civil rights movement and the black power movement that was starting to come into fruition in the, in the mid-70s into the early 80s. When it became primarily drug law offenders that were coming into prison in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, they were lacking in a, in a certain sort of prerequisite political understanding that would allow for these sorts of conversations and study groups to take place. And so at the same time that all the political material was disappearing, the people that were coming in didn't know about the political atmosphere in the first place. And so there was this structurally imposed vacuum of political discourse that developed through the 90s. And and my understanding is is that it exists still today. And so one of the explicit goals of the zine distro is to not necessarily help people reestablish these physical libraries, but to, um, flood the prisons with explicitly political material that can be easily passed around and shared amongst people with the hope that they will then also share their opinions and start discussions of an explicitly political nature. It's not like there's a limit on the number of times people can write back to us, of course, and so we've been sending in packages and packages and packages to the same person for instance they're they're getting almost every zine in the catalog by now and they're sharing it with people that they're housed with and people that they talk to and what have you and so while maybe they don't necessarily get to keep all the physical copies of things that we send them we are of course willing to send copies to anybody that they ask us to or send them as many copies as they think is uh, useful something that we're we're working on now is to try to make some sort of framework for more institutionalized reading groups or, or reflection groups. We all read the same zine and we all reflect on it and share our reflections both between people on the inside and the outside and between people on the inside.
0: And now it's time for next week's news. Here's some events coming up in the next few weeks. Finnish activists are holding an anti-mining
1: action camp near Karelia, Finland Beginning June 18th, the purpose of the camp is to protest an upsurge in mining in the Nordic countries, which have destroyed many natural features in the east of Finland, and made the water of several lakes undrinkable.
0: Chilean comrades have called the 20th through the 25th as days of action for the arrestees of the so-called security case. Freddy, Marcelo, and Juan have each been in pretrial detention for three years and eight months, still awaiting a verdict for charges stemming from several bank robberies and the murder of a cop.
1: And on July 1st through 7th, Croatan Earth First will host the Summer Round River Rendezvous near Boone, North Carolina. The gathering will feature workshops, skill shares, and lots of rowdy fun!
0: Prisoners in Pelican Bay have threatened to resume their hunger strike and work stoppage on July 8th if their demands are not met solidarity with all those who are fighting on the inside we hear you we've got a few prisoner birthdays coming up on the 21st delbert or
1: africa one of the move nine on the 25th abdul majid a black nationalist accused of killing a cop and on july 28th thomas manning imprisoned for armed anti-racist and anti-imperialist actions all of their addresses and information about how to write them is available on our website so drop them a line
0: That's it for this episode of The Ex-Worker. I'm Alanis. And I'm Clara. And we'll be back on July 7th, when we're going to talk some mad shit on the police. This has been a
1: production of the CrimeThink Ex-Workers
0: Collective. Thanks to Underground Reverie for the terrific music you've heard on the show.
1: Don't forget to check us out at crimethink.com slash podcast if you want a transcript of today's show or more information about anything you've heard. And if you got any feedback or ideas for future episodes, Drop us a line at podcast at crimethink.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 202 59 No Work. That is 202 596 6975. Also, if you downloaded this podcast through iTunes, leave us a rating
0: and let us know what you think. Till next time, don't get caught.
1: Okay, that's it. That's, that's the end. Yeah.